All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. Glad everyone can join us today for our program. Uh, today, we've got Dan Bunting with us. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing all right. Thanks. Uh, Justin Dobbs, how are you? Doing well, thank God. Good to see you. And Scott Smelser, how are you doing? Two thumbs up again. Good. All right. Uh, before we get started in our discussion today, we'll remind everyone again, uh, if you have questions or comments about what we're talking about today, you can uh, talk to us live on the YouTube channel. Just put your comments or questions in the chat, and we'll be able to see those as our program goes on. Or if you have questions after we get finished about what we discuss or anything else you'd like us to discuss on the channel, then you could visit our website, BibleQuest.tv, and you can leave your questions and comments on that website, and we'll be able to interact in that way. Uh, so, Dan, I think you're going to get us started with what we're talking about today. What are we doing? Yeah, we're going to look at uh, some psalms and considering uh, an idea that is in a, is in a number of the psalms, uh, the concept of God's right hand or right arm or his strong hand uh, being a, a metaphor or an illustration of God's activity and his power. Often the just you can look up in the Psalms, just the phrase right hand or strong arm and different mixtures of those words. Uh, and it, it demonstrates uh, something that the psalmist is calling on God to act with or referencing what God had done in the past or uh, even the, the arm of the enemy is sometimes used. And it's used to describe just works and activities that the psalmist is thinking about. And this came into my mind because of last week's discussion when we were talking about uh, what does it mean to think of Jesus as Lord and Jesus as King. Uh, that phrase popped into my mind, and so I was just looking up some different psalms where that phrase showed up. And I think I talked about a couple that were in the 40s. The phrase is all throughout the psalms. And it made me think of, in particular, the psalms written by Asaph, numbers 73 through 83. He may have a couple others in, in other sections of the Psalms, but 73 through 83 is Asaph's um, big pack of Psalms. And I usually call him a firecracker of a poet. He writes with a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, he's either really happy or really sad or really angry. You can He feels all the feels. And that makes his Psalms often um, easier to understand because uh, they're what he's trying to say is right there on the surface. And four in particular, I thought, I don't know if we're going to read them all uh, or read them all in length, but Psalms 74, 77, 81, and 83 as just a way of kind of walking through his Psalms. It strikes me that he, I don't know if he wrote them as a series, but the way that they have been organized feels like a, a, a series or an order to me. He begins in Psalm 73 and you feel it in what we're going to read in 74. The enemies are terrible. God, get them all. And by the end, when you get to 83, there is still a call for justice to be done, but it's worded in a different way. And it bears in mind uh, what God has done in the past and with this desire that the people, even the enemies, will think about God. Yeah, Jonathan? Yeah, and going along with that idea, I know we're not going to focus in on this psalm, but the idea that the, the Psalms of Asaph kind of on this progression or this growth, at least organized in that way within the Psalms, the, the first one, Psalm 73, it may be helpful to get like his starting perspective of when he starts discussing the arm of the Lord and what he wants God to do and making those requests. Basically summarizing Psalm 73, Asaph looks at the world and he sees 
the wicked prosper, the righteous don't. What's the point of being righteous? Mm-hmm. Why am I why am I wasting my time? Uh, and, and he's really distressed and kind of serving the Lord when it seems like it's not really paying off until it says in Psalm 73 and verse 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. He sees this kind of long view and it looks like Psalm 74 through 83 are him kind of extrapolating on that idea of looking with long distance glasses and seeing the the purposes of God and how he works um, and different subjects like that will show up in his Psalms of, I know God is working. I don't always understand exactly how he works or why he works in the way that he does, but I know that he has the power to accomplish his will where his his arm or his hand, that type of language will come up. So that's like the initial perspective of Asaph. He's extremely distressed, doesn't know what to do, and uh, and really frustrated with, with life. And then he turns to God to try to help with those answers. Absolutely. I mean, he says in verse 13 of 73, Surely in vain have I cleansed my heart. I've washed my hands and washed my hands in innocency. And so his statement there, and this is a this is a, an idea that I think followers of God are going to stumble onto every once in a while. This has been worthless. I am still suffering and uh, sinners have good things. These are challenging ideas that can create doubt in us. His, his answer was then in Psalm 73. So then I went to the sanctuary and I I compare that to so i went to church and everything was okay and the simplicity of psalm 73 doesn't always work out in everyone's life sometimes uh somebody going to church and being surrounded by godly people they can see that long view um but then again that's 73 that's the beginning of this and it seems like he also takes um some slower uh, approaches through it too uh and I, i think that that's pretty interesting um Let's just, I'm going to go ahead, um, trying to figure out how much I, I want to read. I, I love reading the Psalms all the way through. Um, let's let's take, take, start with one Psalm and take us kind of thoroughly through that one. And then as you choose, highlight in such later. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's just do that. Um, I'll probably end up doing a lot of talking, so I'll split this into two readings if somebody else wants to jump in. Uh, reading verses, it's, it's Psalm 74, 1 through 11, and then 12 through 23. There's a transition there in 12 through 23 uh, it, between those verses that's similar to 73. So 1 through 11 and 12 through 23. Yeah, I'll get it started here. All right. Psalm 74, uh, Maskell of Asaph. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you've purchased of old, which you've redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees and all its carved wood. They broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. There is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? 
Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. And then uh, could somebody read 12 through 23? Yeah, I'll do that. Yet God is my king from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the head of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all of the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. All right. Thanks for the reading. So there's a there's a break in my mind between verses 11 and 12. He's describing the trouble that he sees around them. He says, why have you cast us off forever? And goes in to describe what it means to be cast off. Um, the sheep are lost. Um, uh, the, the, the land is in perpetual ruins. The enemy has come in and they've used axes on a thicket of trees. I, every time I read this, I think of the orcs chopping down the trees around Isengard. <laughs> burning everything up and just ruining ruining the land um, that is around them. Everything is destroyed with hatchet and hammers, and they've set the sanctuary on fire. Verse 9, our signs, our ensigns, our banners, they're all gone. There's nothing for us to look at. And I love his question in verse 11. He doesn't hold back at all. Where's your hand? Why have you put your, it's like, why, why are your hands in your pockets while you're watching us um, get destroyed. If a police officer is watching two people having a knife fight and he stands there with his hands in his pockets, he's supposed to be the one who meets out justice and stops that kind of a problem. Uh, why is God standing there with his right hand um, hidden away? And so what Asaph then does after this complaint of this problem is that he starts saying and responding back to himself, who and what is God, starting in verse 12. He's the king of old. And he starts, in my mind, in verses 13 and moving forward, listing what God has done. I don't know how much conviction and how much feeling he has in it. You divided the sea. You broke the heads. You broke the heads. You gave them. But it seems like there's a crescendo as it built builds up. And he starts to really get into the great work of the creation, uh, possibly the flood, uh, even the deliverance of Uh, the Israelites from Egypt, and he builds with this crescendo of the great works of God, verse 18, so remember this. Remember what the evil ones have done. Remember what you have done. Remember your covenant. And then he has verse 21, which is one of my favorite verses in the Psalms. Oh, let not the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise thy name. This is what we're this is what he's he's pleading on. So much of this psalm is get the bad guys, but there is this 
Um, and, and that's a complicated idea. You know, Jesus talks about turning the other cheek. Uh, it, this is a complicated idea sometimes to marry it up with some of the things that Jesus says. But we realize that the main drive here is that the these lowly ones, um, they need to be lifted up. So there's a lot of fire in this. There's definitely a lot of fire when he's describing the destruction. And he's very angry about them. And he's even, it seems, frustrated with, with God's inactivity. Yeah, Jonathan? Yeah, there's kind of, and this will maybe become more clear when we look at some other Psalms. Uh, I, I like verse 21 to kind of make this point also in Psalm 74. But Psalm 77 makes makes the other side clear that when you, when there's this request of God to show the strength of his right arm or talking about what he's capable of doing or what his purposes are and showing his right arm or using his right hand, using his power, it really kind of manifests in two different directions. One is taking care of God's enemies. Like, God, I want you to destroy the enemies, protect your people, you know, get rid of those that are scoffing, that sort of thing, and his strength able to do that. But then on the more maybe positive side of it, there's this idea of God, use your right hand to help your people. So mm -hmm. use your strength against your enemies and use your strength for your people mm -hmm. um, and to redeem them, extend salvation to them. Psalm 77 makes that really clear in one of the verses that you highlighted in, in the note you sent us in Psalm 77 15, that with your right arm, you redeemed your people. You, you by your strength, delivered your people, protected them, made them a people. And by God's strength, he also destroys his enemies. So it's kind of this dual purpose of, of his ability there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Justin. Well, you, Dan, you mentioned earlier um, that this idea of God uh, or, or calling on God to, to beat the bad guys, I think is the way you said it, uh, get the bad guys, uh, that that seems like a complicated idea uh, in light of Jesus telling us to love our enemies. I wonder, do you want to talk a little bit about why um, why that is so complicated? Or is it just self-evident? Well, to me, it, it, it is self-evident. Um, Jesus tells us to act a certain way, and we see um, Paul, as he's preaching, he's captured, or he's thrown in prison, or he's beaten. And he doesn't brag about that, but when he's talking about his credentials in his second letter to the Corinthian church, he lists the, the suffering that he had at the hand of enemies and oppressors. And so we can see that there was a strong practice of the Christians uh, in, in meekness and letting things um, happen to them without fighting back, without taking vengeance. Paul preaches against vengeance. And what we have here in this psalm isn't Asaph. Um, taking vengeance, but it is definitely him calling on vengeance. And so calling on God's vengeance is not the same idea as acting out in vengeance. Right. But wanting vengeance in prayer or in action comes comes from the same person. And so it's a complicated idea to to balance. And I think that these psalms just give us a place for for working through those those different thoughts. Yeah, going going along with that, when when you have the direct question, like, so how does how does that balance out? You've got asking God to have vengeance, but then Jesus saying you need to love your enemies. And the question itself, I think it kind of answers the the dilemma. We don't have the same rights as God does in every single situation. God has reserved certain things for Himself and Himself only. So Romans twelve, 
vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God is allowed to take vengeance because he is a righteous judge. We are not. <laughs> and so so the, in the question itself, it kind of answers like Jesus's instructions are for us. They're not telling us what God does. Uh, so That passage that Jonathan just uh, brought up, I think is worth reading in a little bit of detail. Let's go over there. It's Revelation chapter 12. Uh, you mean Romans 12? Romans, Romans, excuse me. Romans chapter 12. And let's start with verse 14 and uh, come down into 13. Well, let, let's jump ahead and see what he's going to say in 13. Verse 8. Oh, no man anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. He said, if there's any other commandment summed up in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, amongst our neighbors are enemies. And so, back in chapter 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Weep with those that weep. Um, it says in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the side of all. If possible as far as depends on you live peaceably with all beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of god and that's key both what's going on uh in looking for the justice on the wicked and what jonathan was pointing out here uh never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of god for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord and it tells us, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink, like from Proverbs 25. Don't be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, and then it goes on in this section, you obey the law because the government is there to punish evil doers. That's the purpose of government. Uh, and then love one another. Jonathan. Um, one other observation about that that idea is, uh, that there's a difference between taking vengeance and requesting a righteous God to have justice and, and enact vengeance. And we're not supposed to take vengeance and take it into our own hands. Really what it comes down to is a, a, a matter of faith in God, that God is, is a righteous judge and he's capable of answering the problem of evil. Um, a number of times in the Bible, you see examples of people where God has given promises to them that he will do something. And some people in faith wait on the Lord to fulfill his promises. And some people with lack of faith try to go and fulfill God's promises by their own power. And God condemns the ones that try to fulfill it by their own power. Guys like, um, like Saul or guys like Jacob at the beginning of his life. But then those that wait on the Lord and his promises, guys like David, guys like Abraham, God blesses them and fulfills his promises. And that's what we need to do in those moments. Sometimes maybe we can feel like God's justice is taking a long time and maybe he needs a little bit of help. He doesn't. Uh, vengeance is his. We just need to live, whether we're persecuted or not, in holiness and purity and in love and faith towards God that he will deliver justice and vengeance um, and, and answer the problem of, of wickedness and evil in his time. Mm -hmm. Scott. I have a question here, uh, Dan, and it's on Asaph. Uh, so there's different Asaphs in the Bible, 
And mm -hmm. there's obviously one Asaph who was a musician that was contemporary with David. Mm -hmm. This Psalm, Psalm 74, it's referring to that they burned the sanctuary and mm -hmm. all down, which sounds obviously post-exilic. Mm -hmm. So uh, in your study on the Psalms, and again, there's different Asaphs. Um, do we know which individual these different ones are? Does it become a term for a certain class or family or, or what's what's going on there kind of historically give us a little background on asap or the asaps well from what i can understand the easy answer is nobody knows anything okay. there's an <laughs> and um there's an asap and he lived before all of the events essentially that these psalms sound like they're describing um, and then there are the Asaph Psalms that seem absolutely connected with the captivity, the exile, the problems of that, which is so much of what um, the third and fourth books of Psalms seem to be about. They are, um, uh, the, the thought is that the books of Psalms were assembled around that time, written earlier, but assembled around that time. And so what we have here are a series of Psalms I just go with the statement they're written by Asaph, and then I don't say much past it. It could be his family. It could be it's the style of Asaph. Um, I, I don't quite know. I mean, for all for all I know, Asaph could have prophesied about it, um, and, and they are all written by the guy before the exile. I just don't have a good answer. But for instance, the, you know, after the spiral downward of uh, troubles that the third book refers to, so that's Psalms 73 through 89, the beginning of the trip back up out of despair toward the Psalms of kingship and, um, and the diadem of the God, of, of the great God who's above us, begins with a Psalm by Moses, uh, Psalm 90. And, um, Unless there was a second Moses alive during the exile, I, I think the point is is that th these were gathered and assembled in a way that um, that worked together, and so that's why I, I see a story or at least a train of thought and um, in their organization. I don't know who who Asaph, etc., is, but that's a good question. That's a good question. So here in seventy four, there's a lot of anger. Anger at the enemy, quite honestly, frustration. If I don't want to say verse 11 is anger, I'll call it frustration. But it's pretty close to being angry. It's a complaint to God, where are you? He remembers who God is and what God does, and so has a clearer call on God at the end. But Psalm 74 is full of a lot of anger, and it's full of a lot of uh, demands for vengeance. Justin? Just on that before you move on to the next, next point, um, I've got a note in my Bible. Uh, some of you know Roger Polanco, and we were studying Psalm 73, and he said, man, Asaph got real. Uh, and so that's, I love reading Asaph's Psalms because sometimes we wonder whether it's okay to feel certain things and to talk to God about certain things because, you know, good Christians don't get angry with God. Good Christians don't question God. Good Christians don't feel distress. And that's just, I don't know where these good Christians get that idea, but that's not what you see in the Psalms. Uh, Asaph especially, is, is he is honestly wrestling with the reality of his situation in view of who God is. So he's trying to keep this idea of God active. He knows God is really there. 
God's really got a purpose. He just doesn't see it. And so there's there's really a kind of humility uh, that's at work here when Asa, it, it may sound um, maybe a bit arrogant or a bit uh, pushy, but when a child, uh, and I think all of us are dads here, when one of your children has a question, you want them to ask. You don't want them to sit there and just wonder and, and stew on it themselves. You want to respond. And so there's a kind of childlike humility that Asaph has in going to God like this. Mm-hmm. I think you also see that not only with Asaph, but with Paul. Whenever I think of like what, what you said, like, oh, good Christians don't ever feel these negative emotions. Um, it, it's interesting to see the balance of Paul and how he deals with it. He, so he says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 8, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. And he goes on to list some other things that we were this, but not really bad. Um, but that that phrase at the end of verse eight, perplexed, but not driven to despair, seems like, okay, so Paul was never despairing. But if you read earlier in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 8, he says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So it's like, well, which one is it, Paul? Are you not driven to despair or are you despairing of life itself? And if you read the surrounding ideas that Paul brings up, he felt those really powerful emotions and that despair and that helplessness. But he immediately turns and realizes, but the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians 1 was there to comfort us and delivered us. And even though we might go through perplexing situations and hard things that lead us to feel despair or helplessness, we don't stay despairing because we know things that are like the facts of life, like at the end of Second Corinthians 4, our outward tent might be wasting away, but our inward man is being renewed day by day. We're, we're preparing for this eternal weight of glory. There are these feelings that we experience, but the difference between a, you want to say, good Christian and, and not good is a good Christian feels those feelings and then trusts in the Lord anyway. And that's the pattern that you see Asaph following. He feels those feelings. He takes them to the Lord but then he trusts in the Lord anyways. Go ahead, Scott. Yeah, so I think maybe a good way to think of this is to have some openness in our distress while still retaining respect and reverence for God. Uh, Because if we start to get irreverent and disrespectful, uh, and so... And, and not all the Psalms are going to be like this. Um, uh, I'm sure like Dan pointed out a minute ago in Psalm 73, you get you get a problem, you get a solution. Uh, but it reminds me a little bit, and, and keep in mind, these are Psalms. Uh, so let's take a look at one of our Psalms. Um, oh, the bitter pain and sorrow that time would ever be that I said to Jesus, all of self and none of thee. And then verse two, you've got, but, you know, uh, some is helping a little of the, and you work up to finally in verse four, you know, uh, none of self and all of thee. Mm-hmm. Um, the author knew where he was going with that when he's writing verse one. Mm-hmm. And Asaph back here in 73 says, behold, these are the wicked, verse 12, always at ease, they increase in riches text already referred to in vain have i kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all day long i've been stricken and rebuked every morning if i had said 
I will speak thus. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went unto the sanctuary of God and discerned their end. And so that's a interesting role there from describing the sense of despair, but then pointing to a better way to think, Jonathan. Yeah, and then later on in that Psalm, in Psalm 73, 26, he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's that, that balance again, like I'm really struggling. This is really hard, but God is still powerful and my strength and someone I can rely on and hide myself in. And that sort of thing. Um, we also had some uh, some comments from our viewers. Uh, they said um, there is despair under extreme conditions. Uh, Christians know where the ledges are too. It is faith that draws the Christians back from the ledge. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think that's the, the same kind of point. We know there are challenges, there are difficulties, there are hardships that we're going to face. But then, faith in God and trust in Him and following His purposes. While we may experience persecutions, we know God's strength will deliver us in the end. One more comment I'd like to make along this line, and it's from John six. It's a different context because Peter's not in despair. Uh, I think he's just in confusion. Uh, but the Jesus had previously fed the multitudes, and then they show back up saying, hey, what are you going to do for us? How about give us food? And then Jesus says some really difficult things. Uh, I am the bread. You have to eat my flesh. You have to drink my blood. And the multitudes who are carnally minded and being selfishly minded, instead of seeing spiritual matters, they said, this is a hard saying. We can listen to this. And they went away. And then Jesus says to the disciples, are you guys going to go away too? And I love Peter's answer. What does Peter say? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Yeah. Uh, I don't think at all this meant that Peter understood what Jesus was talking about throughout John 6. But that didn't matter because he knew who had the words of eternal life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and what we see Asaph do, he makes a reference to it a bit in um, 73. He goes to the sanctuary and he thinks about the latter end. Uh, we see more of, the, of his process with it here in 74. And it's repeated a lot in the, in the other songs that I've selected out to, to look at. It, beginning in 74.12, he says, God is king of old. He's worked salvation. And he simply starts listing. God did this. God did this, God did this. He starts telling himself the stories of God's work in the Old Testament, right? He just says, God saved, God made, God saved, and he did these things. Then he turns around with that, I believe, having built up his confidence uh, and trust in God to then say again, God, remember your promises and work for us in the future. But there's a lot of fire and brimstone here, but he still, he goes to God, God's words about his works are what builds him up. Uh, moving to Psalm 77, there is another similar break between 11 and uh, verse 10. In verses 1 through 10, he cries out to God, and the difference between 74 and 77, in my mind, is while he's on fire because they're chopping down the trees of Isengard, uh, in Psalm 77, he's sobbing. He is, he's just absolutely losing it. In verse two, 
And the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night and it slacked not. My soul refused to be comforted. I remember God and am disquieted. I complain. My spirit's overwhelmed. You hold my eyes watching. I'm so troubled. I can't speak. So so, so he is, you know, we've been talking about the word despair. He, he is in this despair in this psalm. He's, it's not anger and frustration. It's it's absolute sorrow. We get some of the greatest questions of, oh, Lord, how long? We found that in, in the book of Revelation. And five or is it six but when the the saints are under the altar and they're pleading up to the lord how long and the answer is not an answer that they're excited about asaph asks it here in seven eight nine will the lord cast off forever and will he be favorable no more is his mercy clean gone forever does his promise fail forevermore has god forgotten to be gracious has he in anger shut up his tender mercies there's no greater despair than considering those questions because if any one of those are true then there's absolutely nothing left in life if god has no more mercies if he is not going to pay attention to his promises with us then what what, what are we doing and so 74 was full of fire this is just full of s sobbing sorrow and verse 10 is complicated to translate um, a lot of translations will have lots of italicized words. And so it's it's hard for me to understand exactly what he says in verse 10, but it's the transition verse. And I said, this is my infirmity, um, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the most high. Um, but I will remember is italicized and it's added in. Um, but there's a sense of I've said these things in my infirmity, but and then there is also this right hand of God. And so either he is saying, I am sick and I say this, or maybe he's admitting I'm so sick. That's why I'm saying these questions that are too intense. I don't know. I don't know how he was reflecting on himself. It doesn't make much of a difference. He is sorrowful and full of sickness. And now he's going to remember what God has done with his right hand in verse 10 and verse 11, he's going to mention them. He's going to remember them. He's going to meditate on them in verse 12. He is going to muse on them. And so it's, it's the same process. He is going to open up the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way right up to whenever this ace of whenever it was, he was alive. He was going to read the Bible stories of what God did. Your way, verse 13, your way is in the sanctuary and who is like you? You've done the wonders. You've made your strength known. Verse 15, you have with your right, with your arm redeemed your people. Uh, when the waters saw you, they were afraid and they trembled and they opened up and it ends up in verse 20. And you led your people on dry land by the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And so what Asaph does here in his um, big pile of sorrow, um, the last one, he's complaining, God, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Now he's sorrowful because if God isn't doing what Asaph thinks God is supposed to do, then that means everything bad is going to happen. Has God left us? Has God, is he gone forever? And he says these things in his infirmity. So what he does is he makes mention, he remembers, he meditates, and he muses on, really, the Exodus story. Yeah, Justin?
It, it seems like in verses one, verse 10, I've forgotten how difficult that verse is to translate. And depending on the translation, it can be like just the opposite of what's going on. Absolutely. But, but you still get the flow. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, either, either it is the transition verse or it's the verse just before the transition. Uh, but it seems like verses one through 10, you've got a man who is going through difficulties and he's calling out to God and he's remembering God, but he's still focused on himself and his problems. Uh, and then, and then your point in verse 11 following is you've got a man now who's remembering God, but he's just focused on God. Um, you know, I've, I've spoken with lots of people and even thought through tragedies in my life and they're just so overwhelming sometimes. And we might talk about God, we might pray to God, we might read God's word, but still the biggest thing in my mind is my problems. It's what I want, it's my disappointments, it's my tragedy. And it seems like one through 10, you know, he's, he's still focused on God forgetting him, the promises and his suffering because it seems like God's not keeping his promises. Uh, and then he shifts and he says, let me just clear the slate and we're just going to talk about God for God's sake. Uh, and, and that is a very different kind of uh, self-help because um, it, it, it gets me out of the way. It is, I am not the center of my life anymore. God's the center of my life. And that brings my problems into a, a sharper focus. Suddenly, the problems that weren't manageable by me are manageable by God because he's done it before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, for instance, what if the psalm was split into two psalms? Like if it was just two different parts, the first psalm would be useless and the second psalm wouldn't be effective because you kind of need to go through the process of what are my problems and where is God? And then the answer is, what is the story of God? Right. And if you only stay in one through 10, you're just going to keep spiraling down. But if you are sad and you accidentally one day read the Exodus, it may not make a difference. <laughs> it's, it's the idea here is that Asaph is connecting the two things together. The answer to my sorrow is that several thousand years ago, God led his people through water. And I need to connect my deliverance that I don't see yet to a several thousand year old deliverance. And so that's, it's kind of like um, when I was saying in Psalm 73, all these terrible things are happening and why is it, why am I even worshiping God? And then he mentioned sanctuary. I always translated church. Then I went to church and everything was fine. Well, it doesn't always feel that way. And so it's not just showing up in a church building. It's not just flipping through the Bible and, oh, I'll read this paragraph and it will magically make me better. Um, I, but I think you're right, Justin. If we stay in verses 1 through 10, we will not go anywhere good. We need to use this to move forward. Yeah, I think it's that that ability to, um, to see the bigger story. As long as my story is the story, uh, it, it's just a tragedy. Uh, but mm -hmm. like like Second Corinthians and Jonathan, you pointing it out, like I don't despair all the way because I know that my story is part of a much bigger story, and in the end, God wins. Uh, and and that that gives me a whole new perspective on life. Scott, a couple of passages come to mind. One going back to what Justin was talking about, getting the focus off self. Uh, what does Elihu do with Job? You know, after the friends have, you know, tried blaming Job for all sorts of things he's not guilty of, and 
Job, uh, not surprisingly, he's gotten rather self-defensive and complaining. Uh, he's in a very, very bitter spot. But then Elihu points out that instead of justifying God, Job is focused on justifying Job. Um, and then also, as, as y'all are both talking about that, I'm also reminded of Romans, where the first, mo- a lot of chapters, second half of chapter one, uh, second half of chapter, middle of chapter two, first half of chapter three is just full of how wretched and miserable and wicked and sinful we are. And that's bad news. And then you get to the last half of chapter three and we get to the good news. Mm-hmm. And just like comfort in God and faith in God is more meaningful sometimes when we are pushed to despair. Um, we understand good news better when we understand bad news. Mm-hmm. 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 One one other line I want to point out in this verse, in this psalm, and then we'll probably need to move on so that we can uh, get to, uh, to, to wrap it up. In verse 19, when he's describing the way out of sorrow, he says, just, you know, um, that that the footsteps weren't known. And I think that that's, a beautiful way of illustrating and trying to describe the fact that God made a path through the sea. And that's an important thing to remember that when we are backed up between a sea and a bunch of hard knives or a rock and a hard place, the path is going to be an unknown path. And that doesn't mean it won't be provided. And I think it's just a, a neat story inclusion uh, written uh, in verse 19. Yeah, Jonathan. That makes me, <clears throat> I mentioned this to you before the, uh, before we, we went live. That makes me think of um, the, the prophecy in Isaiah 53, how that starts out talking about Jesus. It says, uh, who has believed what he's heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then he goes on to describe, I think, the revealing of the arm of the Lord. It's this suffering servant that comes and is beaten and mistreated and killed to deliver people from their transgressions. <laughs> it's like... That's that's not the path that you would expect God's arm to take to deliver his people, but it was the most effective and the most powerful in his son coming and, and dying for us. Um, and, you know, sometimes maybe we can imagine like, God, this is the way that you need to save me, or this is the way that you really need to show up. Mm-hmm. And God has totally different plans of how his hand is going to deliver us. Um, and th- that needs to go back to that faith thing, but also humility, um, humility and accepting God's purposes and his plan of salvation and following through with that understanding that he is going to be able to deliver us the way that he's, he's planned to deliver us. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll, I'll try to do a, a quick look at, cause we're, we're really kind of running out of time, but Psalm 81 and 83, they, they carry through these, these ideas, uh, and, and, in 81, and we're moving towards the better, more mature, I call it the more mature uh, moods of Asaph. In verses 1 through 5 of 81, there is a celebration of God. Take up the psalm, the pleasant heart. Blow up, the, my translation says, blow up the trumpet. Uh, I imagine it's more like blowing into the trumpet rather than blowing the trumpet up. Um, he did these great works uh, in Joseph for a testimony when he went out over the land of Egypt 
where I heard a language that I knew not. I love the transition right in the middle of verse five. He, God, to I, God. And I, God, not me, Dan, but, you know, God is speaking in first person here. He is saving the people from the slavery of Egypt. And he takes this uh, burden off of their shoulders and he, he calls them out from a land where he doesn't and where they're speaking a language, and he gives his people law. Verse nineteen: There shall be no strange. Uh, there shall no strange god be in thee. Neither shalt thou worship any strange god. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. He's remembering the great sal salvation of God. He's celebrating. Um, the, the greatness of God. He isn't complaining about his sorrows in this psalm uh, earlier, but he is talking about the great things of God. Verse 11, but my people hearken not to my voice and Israel would none of me. So I let them go after the stubbornness of their hearts that they might walk in their own counsels. Oh, that my people would hearken after me. Verse 14 says what God would do if we would but listen to him, he would turn his hand against their adversaries. So here Asaph is acknowledging that our sorrows, and not every sorrow, but there are sorrows that we bring upon ourselves because we leave God. And so when he is remembering the stories of God and God's works, he will have to inevitably remember the stories of not just where God did great things for us in the past, but where we failed God and what and how that brought on a lot of problems. And so if these are um, exile and post-exile psalms, um, there is an acknowledgement there that our sinful behaviors are why uh, the sanctuary is destroyed, why we are in such dire straits. And again, this is 81. It's not 73. He, it seems like if, if these are put into, the, put into this order that he there is a growth and a progression. I brought up 81 simply to show that, that he is now talking about our sins, um, his voice is referencing them. And then lastly, just looking at 83, um, this is the last of Asaph's Psalms in this collection. And he again says, it's, it's not very different at the beginning of the Psalm. Verse one, O God, keep not thou silence, hold not thy peace, and be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies make a tumult, and they that hate thee have lifted up the head. They take crafty counsel against thy people and consult together against thy hidden ones. That's the same ideas. God, pay attention. God, listen. The bad guys have done bad things to us, and they've done this against you. And in verse five, they have consulted together with one consent against thee. Do they make a covenant more and more in this song? Um, does it seem that the enemies are not just conspiring against little old me, but against God and God's will? He starts listing the troublemakers in six and seven and eight. And then in nine through 12, he says, bring on the vengeance, bring on the judgment. But. At this point, the vengeance and the judgment is always in the context of the works that God did in the past. And so I think that's a unifying theme that we see through, through these. There's the right hand of God and the right arm of God that does great wonders. But Asaph comforts himself by remembering the works of God. Eventually, Asaph chastises himself by remembering the works of God. And here he uses the works of God as the standard or the limit of the vengeance do unto them as unto and he lists a bunch of bad guys who got punishments 
Um, he wants them to be made like a whirling dust, blast them apart. But then look at verse 16, and we see uh, one of the, to me, this is the greatest of the imprecatory psalms, and it is one that gives us a context for all of them. Fill their faces with confusion that they may seek thy name, O Lord. And, and ultimately, that is what all of God's vengeance is supposed to do. Uh, when God shows up and talks to Cain, he says, look, sin's crouching at the door. Um, it's desirous for you, and you must reject it. And that's God giving him that opportunity. And when Cain goes ahead and jumps into sin, then he's going to have judgments. And those judgments, again, are going to be directing him to God. Eventually, every knee will bow. What I see here is Asaph is, is speaking about less fire and brimstone and more absolutely god your justice needs to be there yeah. but it's in context with what god has done in the past it's in it's the context is to get people to look at god uh, and it seems to have a semblance of of uh of his own of, of humility for himself so i don't think that psalm 73 is bad i just i have seen Asaph grow or mature um, as as they've progressed. Scott? Thanks so much, Dan. And uh, Jonathan will close us out here in just a second. Uh, but that was really good. Um, and I, I, I do like that verse there. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name. Uh, and, and earlier when we were talking about our enemies, Jesus said, pray for your enemies. It's one of the best things we can do. And it will help our attitudes. And I think I mentioned this here before. What I pray for people in times like that is often, Lord, defeat them in what is wrong. And a real good example of that is the story of the prodigal son. Yeah. It, it, was, it wouldn't have been good for him if he wouldn't have run out of money and run out of friends and the family hadn't hit. It was good for him to wish this Jewish boy wish he had it as good as a pig. That was good for him mm -hmm. because he came to his senses. And that's a good thing that we can pray for people. Lord, defeat them in what is wrong so that they might learn and grow. And that's what you got in verse 16. Jonathan? Cool. Well, thanks, Dan, for uh, preparing that and taking us through those psalms. Uh, there's obviously probably a lot more we could discuss uh, about the arm of the Lord, his strength, but that's a good starting point. If you uh, in our audience have more things that you'd like to discuss about that or questions about that topic or anything else you'd like us to discuss on our program, you can visit our website, BibleQuest.tv, and ask us about that there, and we'll be able to do that in the future. That's all that we have time for this week, though, and so we'll plan on seeing everyone next week, Lord willing.